Speaking of Sunday school, uh, we don't have anyone signed up for next week for classrooms. So I'm going to put some of your names there at random. And you can check the list afterwards to see who you are. Um, the rest of you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Second Corinthians chapter 10. I haven't turned there yet. Wait, let me do it. Okay, let's try this. Second Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to be starting in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 6. Then we'll pray and have ourselves a Bible study. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent am bold towards you. But I beg you, that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Jesus, we ask for your Holy Spirit's uh, illumination of this passage, but, but of our hearts. We pray, open the eyes of our hearts, Lord. Uh, give us the spiritual understanding that's necessary to be able to enter into this conversation that Paul is having with the Corinthians and that your spirit is having with his church today here. Bless us, be glorified by this, this time we have, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, Lord, amen. Amen. Um, if, you are, uh, if you're tracking with Paul and the Corinthians, you've been, we were here last week, the week before, you've kind of you know, understood his arguments so far in this book, we've been studying for a while, you know that we're changing gears again, and that can be disorienting. Uh, remember, Paul has been talking about giving. He's been talking about this collection for the poor that he's he's going to be taking up uh, for the last two chapters. He's decided he's done talking about that now, and he's going back to some other stuff that he was talking about before. And and some and the shift in the topic is very abrupt, leading some commentators, Bible scholars, to suggest even that this actually belongs to a completely different letter that. Uh, was eventually just kind of included in 2 Corinthians as a matter of convenience by some editor somewhere. That isn't likely, but the idea, that idea comes from this abrupt change, the switching gears without a clutch. It's not, you know, it, it, it's a little disorienting, but it's not an unknown topic. The stuff he's talking about now in chapter 10, um, it's not like he's never talked about this stuff before. Um, it, it fits with the, the first part of the letter that we, we studied several weeks ago. It's really, if anything, chapters 8 and 9 talking about giving. That's the part that feels out of place. Um, and then now this chapter talking about Paul's strained relationship with the Corinthians and the spiritual realities that influence those troubles. Well, now we're, we're actually back on familiar ground. He's been talking about this stuff since 1 Corinthians, right? Uh, this is stuff that he's written about before. You guys have studied it before. So what we're looking at in chapter 10 is Paul's love for the church. He deeply cares for them. And some of them can't stand him. Um, we're anticipating now his coming to the church. He hasn't visited, visited them in, for a long time because they don't really get along when they're in the same room together. But now he's going to come and we're anticipating what that conflict might look like. It will be joyful and peaceful for some. 
and it will be a harsh reality and a rude awakening for others. Now, in all of this, I, I have to remind you, and I have to be reminded as I study this, that here on a Sunday morning, we're not here to learn about Paul. Like, that's not the point of church. Um, that's incidental. We'll happen to learn things about Paul. But we, we believe the words of Jesus when he says of Scripture, these are they that speak of me. We believe Paul when he says, I've determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified and elsewhere. It's not even I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. So we want to get on that walk with Jesus and the disciples on the road to Emmaus, where Jesus opens up the scripture and shows that he is in all the scriptures. So while we're looking at Paul and learning about Paul and the church, uh, the church in Corinth, we're also, we're seeking to look through Paul to the one that Paul is imitating. And we're not just looking at the Corinthians, we're looking at the greater body of which the Corinthians are only a part, that is the, the church, capital C, of which we are a part. So when we see Paul pleading with the church, we hear echoes of Jesus. And when we see the church struggling, we enter into that struggle. And when we place that struggle within the context of a visit that could go one way or the other for the Corinthians, well, the, the return of Paul looks forward to the return of Christ. In verse 1, where Paul says, I'm pleading with you, we know he's not the only one. He says, I myself, I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you. He's trying to convince them of something. And it, it's hard to, to skip over that without being drawn to the one who stands at the door and knocks. But we'll, we'll look at what Paul says first, and then hopefully with the, the aid of the Holy Spirit, we will look through Paul and beyond Paul to the greater truths behind. So verse 1, take a look. He says, now I myself am pleading with you. Uh, the main thing he's trying to convince them of in the whole book of 2 Corinthians is that he's for real and that he loves them. And they had rejected Paul's authority as an apostle. They had questioned his legitimacy. They had looked for loopholes and found other ways to do Christianity without the extreme accountability that Paul was demanding. And things had become tense between the church and its founding pastor, the Apostle Paul. And I think what Paul is pleading now, he's saying, I'm pleading with you. It's the same thing that he was pleading with them about in the beginning of chapter 7. If you wanted to scan back to 7, verse 2, he says, open your hearts to us. He's pleading with the church to welcome them, really welcome Paul and his missionary friends back into their life again. He, he's also been encouraging them as part of his pleading to get their act together and straighten up and take this Christianity stuff seriously. They can't expect to invite the Apostle Paul back into their church and then continue in unrepentant sin and not have Paul kind of lay down the law and things are going to get uncomfortable. So he says, I'm pleading with you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. This is the basis for making his request. He's saying, I have the meekness and gentleness of Christ in mind as I'm asking you, urging you uh, to also have the meekness and gentleness of Christ when you welcome us to consider us your friends, and even to consider us as those who care for your souls, to consider me, Paul, as your spiritual father. The fact that Christ is meek uh, means that there's no place for the pride and the arrogance in the argument that they had been having. If we're going to live out the life of Christ, if we're going to be the body of Christ, and if we recognize Christ as meek and gentle, we've got to act like that. The fact that Christ is gentle leads Paul to make these requests, knowing that the ungentleness of their past treatment of him 
Uh, it wasn't just something that's like, Paul's like, oh, it hurt my feelings. You really offended me. It's, it's saying, no, we're misrepresenting Christ here. We're misrepresenting Jesus and his love for the world. In pleading by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, he's saying, I'm pleading with you because Jesus is meek, because Jesus is gentle. And he's putting one hand on this truth, that unshakable kindness of Christ, and saying, this is where I'm coming from. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing. This is the standard for how I'm going to pursue unity in this relationship. Now, it's important to mention that these two things, meekness and gentleness, um, are characteristics of Christ. They are things that we are to imitate. Um, and it's important for Paul to mention these things because Paul's attempt to be meek and gentle, which meant he didn't visit them when they were having a fight and things, was all that meekness and kindness and gentleness was mis, mis, uh, misconstrued, misinterpreted by the Corinthians who saw him as arrogant, cowardly, and hypocritical. And so he's kind of defending against that. And he's saying he's lowly, he's humble he's, when he's with them. And he says, I'm bold when I'm absent. I'm writing big letters. And they, they're kind of mean sometimes. Um, he, Paul is saying, I'm not an impressive character in person. Um, but when I, when I write to you, it, it kind of leaves a mark. Now, we don't know how accurate it is, but there is a document written in the second century around 150, between 150 and 190 AD that offers a physical description of Paul. Someone wrote down what they thought he looked like. And he's described as a man of small stature with a bald head and crooked legs in a good state of body, really, uh, with eyebrows meeting and a nose somewhat hooked. Gorgeous. Paul had, Paul had a unibrow. Um, it's not in the Bible, but I don't know. I kind of want to believe it. Uh, it was also understood. It was understood by the church that Paul's injuries from his persecutions, his many, many persecutions, showed that people, it was evident where he came from when he got out of jail. Um, that there's biblical indications that he had very poor eyesight. Uh, when he wants to write and let them know that it was actually him writing and not a secretary, he says, see what large letters I have written you. It's me, Paul. Because uh, if he was basically blind, he'd have to write really large letters. He, he tells the Galatians that they would have given him their eyes if they could have. And so people speculate there and be like, okay, so maybe Paul was blind. And they're saying, oh, I wish, you know, I could have. I could give you sight if it was up to me. So you got a picture, a short, bald, unibrowed, bow-legged guy squinting at you. Um, and so he says, when I'm present, I'm lowly. I'm humble. I'm not impressive. He's unimpressive. He's easily ignored. He's easily demeaned. Many who judge things only by appearance would call him weak because meekness is often mistaken for weakness. Weakness is a lack of strength. Meekness is strength under control. It's strength ruled by wisdom. So in, Paul appears weak when he's sitting next to you. When he writes, well, we've seen how he writes. He really doesn't hold back. And his, his mo most strongly worded letter didn't even get published. The one between First and Second Corinthians, it made them all weep and mourn and gnash their teeth and tear their clothes and everything. Like, that's the kind of letter Paul knows how to write. Read Galatians. It's, it's strong, salty. Um, so some of the translations here, uh, Paul appears weak. We saw that. When he writes, he doesn't hold back. When he says, but being absent, I am bold towards you. In some translations, this statement is set apart as kind of a parenthetical statement. It's almost like Paul is quoting them. It's like he's saying, you guys say I'm inconsistent, right? You think that when I'm with you, I'm weak, and then I'm bold in writing, so I'm, I'm a hypocrite, or you can't trust me, things like that. But listen, what consistency would look like, according to that standard, would be me being bold 
and correcting your sins all the time whenever I'm with you. Does that sound like fun for anyone? Remember, Paul intentionally avoided the Corinthians for a time so that he wouldn't have to go head to head and stir up strife. He wrote a letter instead so they would have a chance to correct themselves and modify their own behavior with the aid and under the care of Titus and other missionaries. So Paul's methods here, honestly, rather than appearing inconsistent, seem very consistently Christ-like. Is Jesus gentle or is he bold? Both, obviously. Is Jesus patient or is he just? Well, yes. The answer is yes. He's both. And if people say, well, God's not being consistent, you know, because I see Jesus meek and mild over here, and then flip over to Revelation and there's fire and brimstone, like, come on, make up your mind. Well, listen, Jesus, like Paul, has intentionally been slow to anger. He has distanced himself, not for the same reasons as Paul, but with similar effect. The world is now left with his message and given time to respond. This is his long-suffering, not his lack of justice. He, like Paul, has sent a helper to lead to all truth, and instead of immediately coming with guns a-blazing every time we sin, aren't you glad he doesn't do that? He sends us his word, his spirit, which is profitable for correction. The word corrects. And he leads us into all truth with meekness and gentleness. Christ pleads. Christ stands at the door and knocks. Paul is saying, I'm coming again. Sounds like someone else we know. He says, I'm coming again. I'm coming to see you. And I want that to be a pleasant meeting. I really do. I want it to be a good visit. I want you to, I don't want you to have to see bold Paul the way I'm going to have to be to those who reject me. Once again, this sounds a whole lot like Paul's boss. Okay. Jesus is coming again. This will be a joyful thing for those who have responded to his message in his absence. Jesus is coming to save, but Jesus is also coming to judge. So Paul writes this confusing sounding sentence in verse two, just be patient, but I'll read verse two again. It says, but I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. So part of his pleading or you know, as he pleads by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, is that the Corinthians get their act together and their, get their heads on straight so that when he comes, he doesn't have to be bold. Now, the way he's talking about boldness here, you might just put in the word tough. He says, I don't want to have to be tough. I'd rather be gentle. But fair warning, I am planning on being tough against some. And the some here are those who are thinking of Paul and, and the other missionaries, the other apostles, incorrectly. They're making false accusations about them. They're slandering them. They're thinking of them as people who walk according to the flesh. And then the next verse, he's going to say, and we do walk according to the flesh. And that's another confusing part of this verse that you get to study this Sunday morning. This can be confusing. You have to realize there that while one word is used, there are two ideas of flesh in scripture, right? You know this, there's the sin nature, that selfish, self-destructive tendency that each one of us has that is diametrically opposed to life in the Spirit. So when Paul writes, in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. He's talking about that sin nature. But then there's the idea of flesh as just this physical bag of bones that we live in. It's a different thing. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the gospel. That doesn't mean that the Word became sinful or carnal in that sense of the Word. So Paul uses the same word twice, 
probably meaning both things. He's going to be bold against those who think of Paul as just a man who is living to serve his own appetites of the flesh, carnally, right? Someone who thinks uh, maybe that Paul's just in the ministry for the fame or something, to have a sense of importance. Maybe they don't think Paul is spiritual enough, and that the false apostles that have, you know, a different kind of devotional life or something are more impressive. These are the guys who are, had rejected Paul's authority. Paul's going to come and correct those people with a boldness. But in verse 3, when he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, he's incorporating this idea with the other idea of flesh, the idea of just living in a physical, material world. He says, yeah, yeah, I have a body. I get hungry. I have needs. A lot of the criticism against Paul was that he was just too normal. He didn't seem like the big, shiny, always dressed in white, freshly laundered, you know, priest robes and things like that. He was just a guy. And he's like, yeah, I, I live in the flesh, but I don't, that's not how I fight. And I love this. He says, I live in this body, but I'm not going to come and fight you in this body. I war in a different way. We're not going to actually have a brawl in your church when I get there. Now, this passage, this whole, you know, these, all these six verses, it's the clear parallel to Paul's writing on spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6. And you guys know the passage, I'm sure. In Ephesians 6, Paul writes, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Crazy. He says, essentially, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we do wrestle. There is a fight. And in Corinthians, he says, we walk according to the flesh, but, you know, in, in, the, in the world, this, in the, in the way that this world can see, but we fight in the unseen realm. You guys were judging me according to what could be seen. I'm short, I'm blind, I've got that, you know, little thing that's got to be waxed. Uh, you know, if you judge the the strength, or try to figure out our strategy based on what you can see, you will be misled. And if you think I'm going to fight you according to those means, again, you, you're misreading the entire situation. And in verses 4 through 6, Paul describes what this spiritual warfare looks like. And it's best if you hear it all at once, so I'll read it again. Verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, or according to the flesh, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down uh, arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. This is slightly different than the Ephesians 6 passage that we're all familiar with, isn't it? Spiritual warfare, you throw that out there, spiritual warfare. And you think of the Ephesians chapter 6, it's like us versus demons. Whoa. In our passage, it's a little bit different. Spiritual warfare, according to Paul in Corinthians, is not just spiritual, it is intellectual. Spiritual warfare, rather than casting down demons in this passage, is casting down arguments. Spiritual warfare is not only bringing spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places to heal, it's bringing your thoughts and your brain into submission under the law of Christ. Taking every thought captive is spiritual warfare. Bringing your ideas, your beliefs, your convictions to the obedience of Christ is just as spiritual as any sort of exorcism or deliverance ministry, and I might add, often much more effective. And probably more needed most of the time. Now, I don't want to downplay the spiritual realities that exist in the world. Angels are real. Demons are real. Satan is real. 
These spiritual beings are around you during your day and have an effect on the world as we see it. All of that is real. And spiritual warfare and the, you know, casting out demons freaky stuff is absolutely more real than you'd probably care to imagine during most hours of the day. And yet, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, that is more effective at countering the schemes of the enemy than just about anything else. In Paradise Lost, which is all about Satan, he's like kind of the main character of that story. Milton, John Milton writes, the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven. Now that's not the same as saying just think good thoughts and it'll be all right, but it is an acknowledgement of the battlefield on which spiritual warfare is fought. There is a war that is for your mind. And submitting your thinking to Jesus Christ, casting down every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, that's your best defense. That's the best defense you have against the demonic. Now again, Paul's not really talking about fighting demons here. He's talking about fighting with Corinthians, which is not flattering for the church. He's not arguing with the devil. He's arguing with Christians. Spiritual warfare. There it is. Now, we, uh, you know, were there spiritual beings involved in Paul's troubles with the Corinthians? Sure. But his work and his warfare was not just trying to find out, you know, like what the name of the demon was to rebuke it. And his task was not to lock himself in the closet and then pray and pray and pray until the Corinthians came to their senses. His task in spiritual warfare was to address them directly, tell them their ideas were bad, and then convince them to to cast down every thought that is opposed to Christ. He's going to teach them and lead them. And this is spiritual warfare. Now in, in 2 Timothy 2 verse 4, it's Paul writing to Timothy. He says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. And when he talks about the armor of God in Ephesians 6, the only weapon in the whole list, it's the sword of the spirit, right? Which he says is the word of God. In season, out of season. It's the means of correcting. It's the means of casting down those arguments that would exalt themselves against Christ. And here he says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. I'm not going to punch you. But the weapons we have are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. We do have weapons. They are not carnal in the sense that they are not of the sinful flesh, nor are they even of the material world exclusively. The word of God is heavenly. You can see a Bible and you can pick it up, but you don't actually hit people with it. Um, that's, that's not how the weapons are used but it's mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. A stronghold is, as the word you know, sounds like, it's a defensible space. Picture a castle that's ready for the siege. It's ready to be attacked. A stronghold, as the name implies, is not weak. I don't think there's such a thing as a weak hold. And if you had one, you wouldn't call it that. In, in this context, a stronghold is an idea or a way of thinking or even a behavior that is held onto, tightly held, that is opposed to Christ and his gospel. It is a strong opinion that happens to be wrong, not just factually wrong, but morally. So it is opposed to Christ. Now, often in Christian circles, you'll hear this word stronghold referring to other things, like an addiction or a sin that can't be mastered. That, that's okay. I don't think it's wrong to use the word to describe those things. Uh, I would say those things usually have intellectual problems that need to be addressed, as it is the renewing of our minds that results in transformation, according to Romans 12, verse 2. But that's a different kind of thing than what Paul is talking about here in this verse. And I'll say, yes, addiction is a stronghold. Yes, we fight those battles 
spiritually as well as physically, materially. But the stronghold that Paul is talking about, it's an argument or an idea. Um, he is armed to make war against bad ideas. He has weapons that will effectively change a person's thinking. He's going to engage in arguments, verse 5, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Casting down the arguments, that's warfare. When someone argues for evil, when someone is making a case for something wrong, we as Christians engage with them and we cast down those bad arguments. But he says that his weapons that pull down strongholds are mighty as they cast on arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Some have supposed that Paul talks about the high things as a subtle reference or nod to the high places of ancient Israel. There were places where illegitimate sacrifices were made, idol worship, lots of worse things. And you know, just as strongholds are castles that boast a military strength, high places were spiritual strongholds that only the most godly kings of Judah had any kind of success in eliminating. When a king like Hezekiah or Josiah would come and cast down the high places, they were doing exactly what Paul is describing here, removing things that would if at all possible, exalt themselves against the knowledge of God, against people knowing the true God. Now, the knowledge of God, knowing God, is something gained by obedience as much as study, and you know this. Walking with God is how you get to know him, isn't it? A thing that could exalt itself against the knowledge of God then can be both an idea or a behavior, since the knowledge of God is something that is come to by thinking and by living. It's by believing. It's by experienced uh, relationship with Christ. It's walking with him on that road to Emmaus. That being so, a bad habit can exalt itself against the knowledge of God just as much as a bad idea. And both of these things are taken to task by Paul in each of his letters. In fact, most of Paul's letters are organized according to this division. He first addresses beliefs, showing what to believe about Christ. He says, this is God, this is what he has done. And then in the second part of his letters, he says, this is how we live. The second part of his letters always uh, address behaviors and practical things, knowing that there are high things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God in both of these categories, our beliefs and our behaviors. He divides the sin nature into these two categories. In many of his letters, describing in Ephesians 2 what our lives looked like before Christ, he said, we all lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. It's the things you do and the things you think. I mentioned the high places, and that could be something that Paul is maybe winking at at least. The more literal meaning of high thing is more like the arrogant, proud things. It's translated as lofty opinions in some translations. The things in a person's life that would dare to assume themselves to be more important than knowing and loving God. These are the things that Paul wars against in every single one of his letters. All of Paul's sermons, all of Paul's encouragements are identifying what takes priority. What is it that takes priority, that puts itself before the knowledge of God? Well, that's the thing we're going to remove then. we got to take it down. That's the thing we attack in spiritual warfare. Tear down the strongholds, cast down the high places, and pursue the knowledge of God, what knowing and loving him above all things. Paul says that his weapons are mighty for this kind of thing. He says they work, they're effective. And we know that to be true about the word of God. 
There is not a Christian in this room who has not seen Scripture change their mind about something. You used to think one way, now you think the other way. You used to have certain convictions, you held them strongly, and then the God-breathed Scripture, which is profitable for correction, among other things, did its job and took the stronghold of what you held strongly and pulled it down. There were things you loved, but you hated that you loved them, and the Lord showed you your disordered loves, and he has reordered them. His word is effective for these things. Now, still in verse 5, when Paul says that he is going to be bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, he's definitely still talking about arguing with other people, right? He's talking about their thoughts and wrestling them to the floor. Um, He's taking other people's thoughts into captivity to the obedience of Christ, saying, you shouldn't think that. You shouldn't think that way. I'm going to tell you how you should think. So it's Paul addressing the church. However, Christians the world over throughout the ages have come to this verse and been struck with its mirror-like character. Again, we look through the Corinthians to the church that the Corinthians are a part of, right? We see how Paul is arguing against other people who are thinking wrongly about Christ or holding on to opinions and practices that get in the way of their closeness with Jesus and the knowledge of God. And we recognize our own minds here. We recognize the need to take our own thoughts captive. Now, I've already shifted the idea of spiritual warfare from fighting demons on one, on one hand, you know, to fighting ideas or other people's ideas and things like that. Well, we're adding another layer to this. The spiritual warfare that you are engaged in, Christian, isn't just with other people's ideas. It's with your ideas. It's your own thinking that needs to be addressed with the scripture, with these weapons that are mighty for pulling down strongholds. The strong strongholds you tear down aren't just in the heads of other people. You are taking on your own thinking, your own mind, your own heart. This is why we take in the word of God every day. It's why we desire to be in the presence of God, because we know if he's God and I'm not, then I'm going to change after being with him. The sword that's able to pierce to the division of soul and spirit is something that we know needs to be turned on ourselves. We have thoughts that will exalt themselves. We will hold lofty opinions that scripture needs to cast down. Our fight, our warfare happens in our own hearts. Now, again, I don't want to take these verses out of context. Paul's not really talking about his own personal holiness here, but he does elsewhere, and we see that these principles fit. It's Paul, after all, who says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. This is all personal for him too. He's taking every thought captive. That was surely part of what the daily mortification of sin that Paul continued in. He could say, I die daily. Just as he could say, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, he could surely say, I discipline my mind and take every thought captive. And just as Paul is planning on taking some people to task for what they are thinking, he encourages the Christians in this and every other church to do this work on themselves. In fact, this is basically what he's been arguing for the Corinthians right here in this passage. He's saying, be tough on yourselves, on your own thoughts, on your own behaviors, on your own beliefs, so that I don't have to when I get there. He tells the Ephesians when he writes to them to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. He's telling them to be renewed in the spirit of their minds. He writes to the Colossians, Colossians 2 verse 3, set your minds on things above, not on things that are on earth. That is a process of taking every thought captive and aligning your thinking and your beliefs with the things of heaven. To take thoughts captive, you have to take thoughts seriously. They aren't just things that happen to you. You do have control over your mind. 
Realize that what you think is serious, that this is a battlefield, how you think, what you believe, the convictions you hold. The instructions Paul gives the Corinthians are the instructions he gives to us. When he urges them to not give him reason for boldness, to get their acts act together so that when he comes, he doesn't have to correct them. He says all of this while at the same time promising that there will be those who are opposed to the gospel and he will be bringing correction on them. The weapons of his warfare are mighty. And verse 6 says the last thing they'll be effective in and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. The encouragement is really this. Correct the things that need correcting. Now, you have everything you need. I've written to you about this before. You have the spirit of the living God who will lead you into all truth. He convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We have these weapons that are mighty for tearing down strongholds. I'm holding off to use these weapons on only those who resist this command. Being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Correct the things that need correcting now so I don't have to correct them when I get there. The phrasing is interesting, and like much of Paul's, it's hard to understand. What does it mean to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled? That can't be the easiest way to write this sentence. He's saying, he's saying, you, you guys who are reading the letter, who are in church right now and read the letter from Paul to the church, okay, you, you have a chance to fulfill your obedience. And I'm waiting for that to happen. When it does, I'm going to come and I will correct the ones who are stubbornly refusing to repent. I'll be patient with you. It's the gentleness and meekness of Christ where I'm standing, that that's how I'm arguing with you. This patience, this long-suffering that maintains the promise of coming judgment. This is reminiscent of a greater patience, of a greater judge who will bring a greater judgment. Christ can and will defeat sin. Christ can and will conquer all unrighteousness. Justice is a Bible word. God's going to be good at it. When Paul would return to Corinth, it would be the same Paul who had visited before. It would be the same Paul who wrote all the letters, but his arrival would mean different things to different people. When Christ returns, it's the same Jesus you read of in the Gospels. That's the one that's coming back. When you encounter heaven, when you encounter judgment after death, it's the same Jesus that you read of in Scripture that will pronounce judgment on every soul. So all judgment has been entrusted to him from his father. Jesus says that. And, and when he returns or you meet him, it's the same Jesus you know and love, but his arrival will mean different things to different people. Hebrews 9.28 describes it one way. It says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. For those who are watching, waiting, hoping, who have this hope of his coming and have purified themselves, as John says in 1 John, that's the result of having this hope. You purify yourself. That's what Paul's hoping to instill in the Corinthians. You have the hope of my coming. Therefore, purify yourself. Take your, your morality, your sins seriously. Take your thoughts seriously. But then we read also in Matthew 16, 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. For those who have held on to their sins, his arrival will mean a different thing. So we recognize that we are in a spiritual battle waiting for final deliverance. 
And the way that we engage, one way that we engage in this battle is by realizing that we have weapons for pulling down these strongholds. We also have bad ideas that need correcting. The lofty ideas that challenge the supremacy of Christ or even bad behaviors that prevent our walking in closeness with Christ, these are ours to defeat. And as Paul sees his ministry as one of challenging these arguments or bad ideas, we join him in ministry in examining ourselves, in taking every thought captive, and we join in his ministry in this world, preparing each person we know for the visit of one a whole lot more important than Paul. Let us fight the good fight, wage the good warfare, in hopeful, joyful expectation of the return of Christ, who conquers sin, who defeats our bad ideas, and who will bring us with him into glory. Let's pray. Jesus, we worship you, and we say, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We trust you with our lives, with our church, with our loved ones. We thank you that your word is both strong and gentle, that you correct our, our wrong thinking and you do it with patience. We pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to gently correct us and shape us into the, into the image of Christ, that you would build us up into the fullness of the stature of Christ. Your word has gone forth, we pray, that it would not return to you void in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please stand. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. If anyone needs prayer for anything specific, there's people who are happy to pray with you up front. The rest of you, you are sent.